Right, okay, that's some hailstorm out there, isn't it? Look at that, we're only on the third talk and the Lord's sending plagues on us already. Goodness, keep your eyes open for frogs. Any minute. Okay, we're going to move on now and we're going to start looking at the significance of the Lord's Supper. Why does the Lord want us to have this special meal together? And it is a special meal because it's his meal. Why does the Lord want us to have this special meal together when we meet as a church? And so we're going to look at the significance. And the first thing we're going to look at in this talk is its individual aspect. We're going to look at its significance for us as individuals in our relationship with the Lord. Then in the next talk, we're going to look at its corporate aspect the significance for us as meeting together as a corporate gathering as people. So we're going to look at our fellowship. But here we're going to be looking at the individual aspect of the significance of the Lord's Supper. Now in Luke 22, I'm just going to read verses 19 and 20. Um, And Jesus took bread gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying this is my body given for you do this in remembrance of me in the same way after the supper he took the cup saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you now what Jesus is saying here is he says this meal is representing to you or is there to remind you of to point to the fact that a new covenant is now coming into being. So obviously when you've got a new covenant you've got something that's replacing an old covenant. You know, and if you buy a new car it kind of replaces your old car. And so what we've got to do now is that we've just got to delve into this whole thing in scripture about covenants. At the end of the day, we talk about the old covenant, we talk about the new covenant, and so we've got to see how this relates to the love feast. Now, in the ancient world, and therefore in Bible times, you'll find that there were three types of covenant that existed in ancient societies. Now, the first type of covenant that existed was called a parity covenant. And it was called a parity covenant because it was just between equals. If you're on a par, you're equal to someone. So, for instance, you might have two businessmen who enter into a covenant to trade together. That's a parity covenant, equals. You might have two tribes and they make a covenant together. You might have two nations who make a covenant together. And these are called parity covenants because they were covenants between individuals or groups of people who were equals. A good example today of a parity covenant might be your car insurance or your automobile insurance, as you say over here. Now, I mean... Your, your insurance company isn't superior to you, are they? You're not superior to the insurance company. You know, insurance company's got nothing to do with that. It's just a contract that two groups or two people enter into, all right? 
and each party knows their side of the contract. So that's a parity covenant. And the thing to note at this point is a parity covenant is conditional. Now, by which I mean this, if you take out insurance, that's a covenant between you and the insurance society, there are demands made on them in regards to it, and there are demands made on you, conditional. So, if your car becomes illegal and you don't maintain it, you're, you're going against the condition of the insurance, and therefore it's null and void. So, parity covenants are conditional. You have to do your bit the other party has to do their bit. Okay, that's a parity covenant. Now, the second <clears throat> type of covenant that you'll find in Scripture is what is called a suzerain vassal covenant. Now, I'll explain that. Suzerain vassal covenants applied when you had nations invading each other. They tended to relate to military power. So, for instance, what would often happen? I mean, sometimes one nation might invade another, and if they win, they just wipe the nation out and take it over completely. All right. But often, what happened in the ancient world would be if you had a nation that was expanding as an empire, it would conquer another nation, but it wouldn't annihilate the nation. And what it would do is it would give that nation a certain amount of autonomy allow it to keep its culture within limits as long as that nation were paying all their taxes to the empire. All right. So, therefore, as long as the vassal nation, and the vassal was the nation that got conquered, as long as the vassal nation was being loyal to the rules and regulation imposed by the suzerain, the king of the dominating nation who had invaded, as long as they did that, they were protected by the, by the suzerain. But if they rebelled against the suzerain, then the suzerain will come in and wipe them out. Now, to give you an idea of this, at the time of Jesus, Israel was the vassal nation to the suzerain power of the Roman Empire. The Romans didn't march into Israel and obliterate it. Israel still had a certain amount of power. It still had a certain amount of self-government. But it had to pay its taxes to the Roman Empire. It had to agree not to do anything that was rebellion. And had they done, then Rome would have come in and wiped them out. And of course, eventually that did happen. So can you see that that is a suzerain vassal covenant? When a superior power occupies a lesser power, and the lesser power has conditions placed upon it for its survival. If it obeys the conditions, the suzerain looks after it. If it goes against the conditions, the suzerain destroys it. And so again, with a suzerain vassal covenant, it is conditional. As long as the, as long as the vassal nation fulfills the conditions, the suzerain power looks after it. The moment it doesn't, it gets wiped out and the contract is over. So again, there you have a conditional contract, a conditional covenant. Now, the third type of covenant that you got in the ancient world was completely different. And it was called a royal grant covenant. And a royal grant covenant was quite simply a gift 
bestowed by a king on one of his subjects. It was a bequest given to you by the powers that be. And of course, in the ancient world, if a king decided to give you something, you took it. As simple as that. Because the king was ultimate power. So a king could say, you've, you've, you've been a great, a good general in my army, or you've been a good foot soldier, I'm going to reward you, have this land. And it was just given to you, it was yours. And it was yours because the king said it was yours and he gave it to you. That was called a royal grant covenant because it was royal, came from the king, and it was a grant. And a grant is something you're given. It's not a loan, it's a grant. And of course, the reason that this is different from the other two covenants we've seen that existed is because this is unconditional. You were just given it. You didn't have to do anything to get it. You didn't have to do anything to keep it. The king decided to give it to you. So royal grant covenants were unconditional. Now let's just have a look at the Hebrew, the original language of the Old Testament for covenant. The Hebrew word is bereth. That's the word for covenant in the Hebrew. But the terminology is different to how we speak about it. We talk about making a covenant, wouldn't we? In the Old Testament, it always speaks in terms of cutting a covenant. Bereth is always used in conjunction with another word, kareth. And kareth means to divide in two. So the terminology of covenants in the Old Testament is that you cut a covenant. And the reason that you cut a covenant is that very often what would happen is that when you had a covenant between two parties, you would have what was called a founding sacrifice. Could have been a sheep, could have been a cow, could have been a bird or something like that. And what would happen is that you would cut this sacrifice in half and then the two parties would walk between the divided halves. And it was their walking between that divided sacrifice that meant they were entering into the obligations to each other of the covenant and therefore it spoke in terms in scripture of cutting a covenant now let's let's actually see this go go to genesis <clears throat> and we're going to be looking at various covenants in the bible and in genesis <clears throat> chapter 15 and i'm going to read verse 9 and 10 once <clears throat> and this is a covenant between god and abraham so the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat and a, a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. So there he divides the founding sacrifices in half. Then if you go down to 17, when the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoke and brazier with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said to your descendants, I will give this land. Now then, can you see there the language of cutting a covenant? If you go to Jeremiah chapter 34, and we'll just see this again. <clears throat> Jeremiah 34, verse 18. 
I'm showing you this because I don't want you to think I don't know what I'm talking about. I mean, I don't, but I don't want you to think that. Um, Jeremiah 34. It's, it's the English humour, isn't it? It's just too fast. I, I understand. I understand. You're, you're Americans. Right, okay. Jeremiah 34 and verse 18. And... Um, they say, yeah, the men who have violated my covenant and have not fulfilled the terms of the covenant they made before me, I will treat like the calf they cut in two and then walked between its pieces. So again, there's the Lord referring to the fact that people were breaking a covenant and so he said, you cut the sacrifice in half, you've broken the covenant, I'm going to do that to you. So there we have the idea that with covenants in the ancient world, you cut a covenant. Now, when you did cut a covenant, there were four parts to it. There were four things that went together that comprised a covenant between two parties. The first one we've already seen, you actually have the founding sacrifice. So that's the first thing. The second thing in a covenant in the ancient world is the parties were defined. I mean, that happens when you insure your automobile. I mean, obviously, you know which insurance company it's with, and they've got your name and address. You know, I mean, you define the parties. So you get the parties clearly defined who this covenant is between. Then thirdly, you get the terms of the covenant. Now, the terms of the covenant is what, does each, what is each party responsible for within this covenant? And it's in the terms of the covenant that you have to look at whether it's conditional or unconditional. So in a royal grant covenant, if the king gave you something, there weren't any terms. You just got it. But if it was either of the other covenants, there were terms. You had to know what your part was. They had to know what their part was. And then the fourth thing you see in these covenants in the ancient world is there would be a sign of the covenant. Something would be done which was the action whereby, as it were, you actually entered into it. And it could be various signs, various things. Uh, sometimes they would swap an article of clothing um, or they'd swap a sandal. And that would be a way of saying, here, we're going to have a covenant together. OK, there's your bit, there's my bit. OK, let's swap sandals. And it was swapping the sandals or swapping the coat that bound. That was you giving your word and accepting the conditions. Um, it could be setting up pillars. Sometimes they'd set a pillar up on their land. And, and, and you'd have a pillar on your land. The person you've got a covenant with had a pillar on their land. That was the, ter the sign of the covenant. Also, and of course we'll be back to that, often it was eating and drinking together. You'd have a covenant meal. And in eating the meal together, you were entering into the binding contract of that covenant. Um, Noah, as we're going to see, got a rainbow. That was the sign of the covenant made God, God made with him. And today, we might shake hands or sign a contract, all right. But that's the sort of thing that happened in the ancient world. Now, we, we just read about that uh, covenant that God entered into with Abraham. Let's go back to that in Genesis, in, uh, Genesis 15 and uh, just have a look at that. We're seeing four things. The founding sacrifice. Well, there it was a heifer, a goat, a ram, a dove, and young pigeons. Right? That was the founding sacrifice. The parties were defined as the Lord and Abram. Right? Now, the terms. What were the terms of that covenant? Well, 
it was a royal grant covenant. It was unconditional because God said, I will give. He didn't ask Abram to do anything. He just said, I'm going to give you the land. Period. Royal grant covenant. So that was unconditional. So the terms were unconditional. It depended on God. It didn't depend on Abram. And the sign of that covenant was a smoking brazier and a blazing torch. Now it's interesting. They laid out the sacrifice, they cut it, and the brazier and the torch went through the, the sacrifices. Now question, why didn't Abraham walk through? Because it's a royal grant covenant. Abraham didn't have anything to do. The Lord bound himself. It was a royal grant covenant. So the brazier and the torch represented the presence of the Lord. So the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. It was royal grant, divided the sacrifice, and the Lord walked through. Because there was nothing for Abraham to do. He simply got what God said. God promised the land to his descendants. Simple as that. Royal grant. And the sign, the brazier and the, the, the blazing torch represented that God was saying, right, here is me entering into this uh, covenant with you. Let's, let's do Noah. Go back into Genesis chapter 8. <clears throat> let's look at the covenant with Noah. <clears throat> right, Genesis 8, I'm going to start reading from uh, verse 15. <clears throat> then God said to Noah, Come out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and their wives, Bring out every kind of creature that is with you, the birds, the animals, and all the creatures that move along the ground, so they can multiply on the earth and be fruitful and increase in number upon it. So Noah came out together with his sons and wife and his sons' wives. And all the animals and all the creatures that move along the ground and all the birds, everything that moves on the earth, came out of the ark one kind after another. <clears throat> Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and taking some of the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of man. And though every inclination of his heart is evil from childhood, never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. As long as I eat worldwide flood, as long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, will never cease. Right, and then verse 1 of chapter 9. Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. The fear and dread of you will fall upon all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air and every creature that moves along the ground. Okay, now verse 8. Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth. I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be cut off by the waters of a flood. That was the covenant. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant I'm making between me, you, and every living creature with you. A covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. 
Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. So God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant I have established between me and all life on earth. Right, okay. What was the founding sacrifice? The animals and the birds that Noah sacrificed. Now then, the parties were defined. Who were the parties? Well, there was God and mankind and all the birds and all the animals. They were the parties. So this was God and every living thing. Now then, what were the terms? In this covenant, God said, I will never destroy the earth again with a flood. So what are the terms? There aren't any. It's a royal grant covenant. It's unconditional. So well, there are terms. God says, I will never do it. They're the only terms. It's a royal grant covenant. Nothing for Noah to do. This is quite simply something that God is saying, I will never do it and I make a covenant. So what was the sign? Well, it was the rainbow. And God said, whenever you see the rainbow, that will remind me that I've said I will never again destroy the earth with a flood. Okay. So there is the covenant with Noah, and you can see all the constituent parts, and that again, like the covenant with Abraham that God made, it's royal grant. It's unconditional. It's a gift. God just said to Abraham, I'm going to give your descendants the land, and he did. And God said to Noah, I'm never going to flood the earth again. And he hasn't, and he won't. Simply something that God either does or doesn't do. So, we've seen two covenants in the scripture between God and man. And thus far, they've both been royal grant covenants. So, we've got to ask the question, well, does God make any other types? Or when God makes covenants, is it only royal grant? Well, the first answer to that question is obviously God doesn't make parity covenants with anyone. And I'll tell you why. No one's equal with him. So there are no parity covenants between God and anyone else. Because God is no man's equal. He's no one's equal. He is the Lord of the universe. Okay. But the question that we have got to ask, okay, so has God ever made a suzerain vassal covenant with anybody? We've seen him make royal grant ones. He obviously can't make parity ones because no one is his equal. So has God ever done a suzerain vassal covenant with anyone? Well, and the answer is yes. And do you know what it's called? We call it, yeah, the Mosaic Law. We call it the Old Covenant, don't we? God, the Lord God of Israel is the suzerain in the Old Testament is seen as the suzerain power occupying Israel as the vassal nation. Can you see that? God was the king of the universe. He wasn't an Israelite. Now then, when he became a man, yes, when the second person of the Trinity became a man, he became an Israelite. But before the incarnation, God wasn't an Israelite. Well, of course he wasn't. He was English. <laughs> See, so, so therefore God was the suzerain and Israel became the vassal power. So let's, let's actually see this in the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. If you go to Exodus chapter 24. Sounds like someone's having a rave next door, doesn't it? That music. Okay, right. Now then, 
Um, Exodus 24 and uh, verses 4 to 8. Is, is that something we have any control over? Oh, right. Oh, okay. Fine. If we have no control over it, I shall just try and ignore it. Okay. making my vassal. <laughs> yes. Right. Okay. Now then, in Exodus 24, and I'm going to read verses 4 to 8. Okay. Um, oh, I'm in the wrong, wrong one again. I'm in Joshua there. Exodus 24. Uh, S-U-Z, because I must remember I'm in America now. It's not Z, it's Z. S-U-Z-E-R-A-I-N. Right, okay. Exodus 24, and I'm going to read verse 4 to 8. Uh, Moses then wrote down everything the Lord has said. He got up early the next morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and set up 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Then he sent young Israelite men and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half the blood and put it in bowls and the other half he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to all the people. They responded, we will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Now here we have mentioning here the blood of the covenant. This is the founding sacrifice. Now remember, this is exactly the language that Jesus used at the Last Supper the blood of the new covenant. So here we have the blood of what, from our perspective, we call the old covenant. And therefore, what we've got here, you get the founding sacrifice, and then what happens is the blood is taken, now the parties have to be defined. Well, who are the parties? Israel and God. So Moses takes the blood, divides it into two, he throws one half on the altar, representing the Lord God of Israel, and the other half on the people, the Israelites. So, because there the parties are defined. This is between God and the people of Israel. Now then, the terms now need to be defined. So if you go over back into chapter 19... Chapter 19 and verses 5 to 6. Remember, the context here is, is the Lord giving, like, you know, as it were, not, not just the Ten Commandments, but the whole 613 Mosaic Commandments. Okay. So then, chapter 19 and verse 5 to 6. <clears throat> and this is when the Lord first starts talking to Moses about it. He says, Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. Okay? So there, the terms are being defined. God is saying, if you obey me fully, I will bless you and you'll be top dog amongst all the nations. That's basically what it boils down to. Now, go to Deuteronomy chapter 28 which is another account of the same thing, as it were. And in Deuteronomy 28, first I'm going to read verses 1 to 2. <clears throat> if you obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all his commands that I give you today, 
The Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. All these blessings will come upon you and accompany you if you obey the Lord your God. There's one set of terms, but let's go to verse 15. Remember, this is a suzerain vassal covenant. Verse 15, however, if you do not obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow all his commands and decrees I am giving you this day, all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. And then you get the list of all the curses. And the final curse was to actually be removed from the very land itself. So what we can see here is that, yes, this is a suzerain vassal covenant between God and Israel. As long as Israel keeps God's laws, as it were, then God will protect them and bless them. But if they don't, if they rebel against the suzerain, then the suzerain will come in and wipe them out. And that's exactly what we see here in the Old Covenant. So therefore, what we've got here is obviously a conditional covenant. It's conditional upon God. He says, as long as you obey me, I'll bless you. But it's conditional upon Israel. Because if they don't obey him, God will wipe them out and remove them from the land. Now, let's see the sign of the covenant. We've seen the founding sacrifice, the blood. We've seen the parties defined, God and Israel. We've seen the terms defined. This is a suzerain, you know, conditional suzerain vassal. Now let's see the sign of the covenant. If you go to Exodus, <clears throat> Exodus chapter 31, <clears throat> and first of all, verse 18. Exodus 31, verse 18. When the Lord finished speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai, he gave him the two tablets of the testimony, the tablets of stone inscribed by the finger of God. These, these are the tablets that the finger of God wrote the Ten Commandments on. So there's one set for God and there's one set for Moses and the people. Okay, uh, Go over to Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy chapter 4. And uh, verse 13, and we see the same thing. He declared to you his covenant, the Ten Commandments, which he commanded you to follow and then wrote them on two stone tablets. So here is the sign of the covenant. The main Ten Commandments, the Lord has written out twice. Moses gets a copy and God has a copy. So this is actually a written contract. And that is the sign of the covenant. Okay. So the sign of the covenant here is supernatural written contracts on tablets of stone. The law of God written on tablets of stone. Right. So now we move into, as it were, the New Testament. The, the era of Jesus onwards. And of course now we're dealing with Greek. And we've already seen in Luke 22 that Jesus said, this is my blood of the new covenant. Now this is tremendously interesting. In the Hebrew, in the Old Testament, covenant, the Greek word bereth, simply meant covenant of any kind. And you discover what sort of covenant it's meaning from the context. 
When we come to this Greek word in Scripture, that G, you know, for Jesus speaking about the covenant, it's rather different, okay? Whereas the Hebrew Bereth could either mean, it, it, it could mean a, a parity covenant, it could mean a suzerain vassal covenant, or it could mean a royal grant covenant. When we come to this Greek word, here in Scripture, when Jesus says about a covenant, the Greek word here is diatheke. Now, the point to get, it doesn't just mean covenant in the general. It means a specific type of covenant. Right? And what it actually means is not just covenant in general, but a particular type of covenant that technically is called a testament. Now don't worry, I'm going to explain this to you. So diatheke doesn't mean covenant in general, it means a particular type of covenant. And the particular type of covenant it means is referred to technically as a testament. And what a testament is, is a royal grant covenant. Now you'll see this in a moment. We get our English word testament from the Latin testari. And the Latin word testari means a will. When someone dies, they leave a will. So this New Testament word covenant doesn't mean covenant in general, it means a particular type of covenant, and the particular type it means is a last will and testament. Now, what is a last will and testament? A last will and testament is fundamentally an unconditional gift you get when someone dies. You get a letter in the post from a solicitor saying, your great uncle Fred has died, and I'm very happy to tell you that he's left you a million bucks. Come get it. There's no condition to it. You've been left a million bucks. That's what a last will and testament is. Now that is what Jesus said the Lord's Supper related to. So technically, when we talk about the two parts of the Bible that we put together, we're technically incorrect to call them the Old, covenant, sorry, the Old Testament and the New Testament. What we should be calling them is the Old Covenant and the New Testament. Can you see what I mean? Because covenant is a general word, meaning any old covenant, and the context tells you which one. But the New Testament is totally unlike the Mosaic Covenant. Why? The Mosaic Covenant was a conditional suzerain vassal one. The new covenant in Jesus' blood is a royal grant covenant, i.e. you simply get given something by someone who has the power to give it to you. Now then, note the other difference, and this is tremendously important, the other difference between the old covenant the Mosaic Law, the suzerain vassal one, and the New Covenant, which is a testament. And it's quite simply this. If you have a covenant, which is a conditional one, royal grant or parity covenant or whatever, a covenant that is conditional is dissolved 
upon the death of one of the parties. So if you have a business covenant, say, say you're a window cleaner, and you've got a covenant with a friend of yours, and he cleans cars. So you clean his windows, he cleans your car, and you enter into a contract to do that. If one of you dies, the contract's off. In any contract that is conditional, if one of the parties ceases to exist, the contract is terminated. It's null and void. It doesn't count anymore. With your automobile insurance, if you died, it's off. <laughs> See, your insurance company is no longer um, bound to, to insure your vehicle because you're dead. But if your insurance company goes bankrupt, then you have no more obligations to it either. It's gone. It's defunct. So the point is, with a covenant that's conditional, the death of one of the parties finishes and ends that covenant. Whereby a testament comes into effect when one of the parties dies. Do you see the difference? Well, let me clarify it. If I die, if I drop dead before I finish these talks, if you could be that lucky, <laughs> all right, then two things happen. All the covenants that I'm involved with, with other people, my car insurance, house contents insurance, they're all off. Because I'm one of the parties, I'm dead, they're all gone. But my last will and testament comes into effect. Now, can you see the point here? When a covenant, the death of one of the parties ends it. With a testament, and the new covenant is a testament, the death of one of the parties kicks it off and starts it. Now, let's just ask a question about the old covenant, the Mosaic law. If you say what was its function, it was multiple. But one of the really big reasons that God gave Israel the law was basically to demonstrate that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and need to be saved. You see, the law, and in particular the Ten Commandments, is this, they are the straight edge against which the bentness of our sin is shown in sharp relief. Can you see that? Now, it was a conditional covenant because God said, look, you obey all my commands and I'll bless you. Well, that sounds great, doesn't it? There's a big problem, though. You can't keep God's commands. God did not give the Mosaic law in order for people to keep it. He gave the Mosaic law to show them beyond any shadow of a doubt that they couldn't keep it. The law of Moses was never intended to be the means of salvation. The law of Moses was given to show people, one, that they're sinners, two, there's nothing they can do about it, and three, if they are ever going to be saved and brought back into fellowship with God, then they need a covenant that is a royal grant one. If someone's going to be saved, they need to have a covenant which is simply a gift from God to them and which is unconditional, i.e. the law which said do good works and be saved was only given to show you that you couldn't do the good works 
and that if you were going to be saved, it had to be another way. And that way was through faith in Jesus, the free gift of God. The new covenant, the New Testament in Jesus' blood, is the royal grant covenant of salvation. And this is what Jesus came to effect. Okay. Now then, it came into effect when? When does a testament come into effect? When the person dies. When Jesus died on the cross, the new covenant, which is his last will and testament, came into effect. My will will come into effect when I die. Anyone who's going to get any of my goodies, and don't get too excited, there ain't much to get, all right? But anyone who's going to end up getting any of my goodies have got to wait till I'm dead. Then they'll get them. The new covenant is Jesus' last will and testament, and it came into effect when he died on the cross. That is one of the many reasons why just before he died, he says it's finished. Because once he died, his will came into effect and the inheritance he left could be given to those he'd left it to. But Jesus' death, at the same time that it brings the New Testament, the New Covenant, into effect, it does something else to the Old Covenant. The old covenant of works. What does it do? Well, we've already seen that if you've got a conditional covenant where two parties are each got to do their bit, if one of the parties die, that covenant's off. Now, when Jesus died on the cross, what happened? Who was the old covenant between? The nation of Israel and the Lord God of Israel. Who was the Lord God of Israel? The Lord Jesus Christ. <coughs> When Jesus died on the cross, the other party to the Old Covenant died. Israel didn't die. Jesus died. The moment he died, the Old Covenant was fulfilled. The moment Jesus died, the Old Covenant went out of effect. Not because there was anything wrong with it. It had done its job perfectly. But it went out of effect because now the New Covenant... It was just the rocket booster, you know. Now the new covenant comes into effect. And both happened when Jesus died on the cross. So the covenant of works ends because Jesus, who was one of the parties, dies. Conditional covenant all over on the death of one of the parties. Now the New Testament, which is his last will and testament, because he's died, that comes into effect. And what is the inheritance that Jesus left when he died on the cross. It was salvation as a free gift. Go to Hebrews 9. Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. And just going to read from verse 15. For this reason... Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. 
This is the language of someone dying and leaving their inheritance to other people. Now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. The first covenant showed you how sinful you were. The second covenant provides you with forgiveness for how sinful you are. Okay? Then keep going. In the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it. Because a will is in force only when somebody has died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living. This is exactly what the writer of the Hebrews is saying. The, the whole push behind the book of Hebrews is showing the relationship of the new covenant to the old. And the relationship of the new covenant to the old is that Jesus has fulfilled the old covenant and the old covenant has now been replaced by a new covenant which works in a completely different way. But the old covenant was only there to show you that you needed the new covenant. And so therefore Jesus has fulfilled it. The old covenant passed away when Jesus as one of the parties died because it was conditional. And the new covenant comes into being because it's Jesus' last will and testament. So what we've got to do now is, okay, we've seen that for any covenant there are four requirements in Scripture. So let's look at the four things about the new covenant, okay. Or, more accurately, the royal grant covenant of Jesus, of the free gift of God through faith in Jesus Christ to salvation. Well, let's see it. What's the founding sacrifice of the New Testament? It's Jesus' death on the cross. That, he, is the sacrifice. Go to Luke, back to Luke 22. And, and keep bearing in mind that all this is tied up with the love feast. All right. Luke 22, we've read it before, but in the same way after the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. It's his death. It's his death. And of course, this third cup represents salvation through faith in Jesus, the church. All right. So there is the founding sacrifice. Uh, that, that was Luke 22, 20. So the old covenant has been dissolved through the death of one of its parties and the new covenant is brought into being as the last will and testament of the one who died. And who died? Jesus. Jesus died on the cross and he left people an inheritance. And just at this point, when you have a will, you have an executor. An executor is there to make sure that those who are named in the will get the goodies. That's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the executor of Jesus' will. The Holy Spirit is the one who makes sure you get what Jesus left you in his will. Now then, let's right, ask about the parties. Because in a, in a covenant, the parties have got to be defined. Well, obviously, one of the parties is Jesus. Who's the other party? Well, go back to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9, okay, again. We saw this earlier, but now we've got to home in on it and check it out with some other verses. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15. So who are the named parties in this contract? Okay, um, 
Hebrews 9 and verse 15. Yes, that's right. Got it. For this reason, Christ, as one party, is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. So who are the two parties? Jesus, the Lord God, and those who are called. Go to Acts 13. Go to Acts 13. And it, if I'm going into an area now where you think, oh no, no, don't agree, that's fine, I might be wrong. I can only share my understanding. So don't, don't get worried if you see this differently to me, that's no big deal. We'll just enjoy our fellowship together, okay. Acts 13, Acts 13 verse 48. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honoured the word of the Lord. And all who were appointed for eternal life believed. Now, let me just point out, you cannot, by any gymnastics whatsoever, translate that, and all who believed were appointed to eternal life. It definitely, without any doubt whatsoever, no question reads, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. Because we've seen who are the parties, Jesus and those he has chosen. Boom, boom. Now then, go on to, uh, on to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 and uh, verse 28. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, so that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So there we have it again. Oh, let's go down to verse 30. Those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. So here we have the two parties, Jesus and those who are called. Go over to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 11. Um, in him... We were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. So therefore now we see the parties, Jesus and those whom he has called. Now then, let's look at the terms. What are the terms here? What are the conditions that we have to meet? Are there any conditions we have to meet? Go back to Hebrews 9. Back to Hebrews 9. And again, verse 15. And let's read it again. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. So what are the conditions? Well, we're seeing the new covenant is royal grant. There aren't any conditions. Or if you like, the only condition is being called. But that ain't nothing to do with you anyway. This is an unconditional covenant. Go to Romans. Go to Romans. Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. Verses 1 to 2. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, 
through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And, and, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. What's the condition there? There isn't a condition there. Now it's saying, but what about faith? What about faith? Well, I'll get there in just a minute. Okay. Go to John. John chapter 3. John 3 and verse 16. John chapter 3, Gospel of John, chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Go on to verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. Now that might you think, yeah, but, you know, might make you think, yeah, but Beresford, there is a condition. You've got to have faith in Jesus before you can enter into it. Let me tell you, you did not get into Jesus' last will and testament because you believed in Jesus. You believed in Jesus because you were in his last will and testament. Believing in Jesus was the first instalment of you receiving your inheritance. Faith is a gift. You don't just decide, mm, yeah, I think I'll believe in Jesus today. You hadn't done anything else righteous in the rest of your life before that. And believing in Jesus is the most righteous thing you ever do. So, this is important to remember, we're looking at the new covenant is royal grant. It means a testament. It's a last will and testament. It's Jesus leaving an inheritance to people of his choosing. Now I'll tell you one of the things, when you die, well your will might say, here's all my worldly goods. Anyone who wants to share, apply. You don't. You decide who's in your will. Shall I tell you what the Lamb's book of life is in scripture with all the names in? The Lamb's book of life is Jesus' last will and testament. And your name didn't go in that book when you became a Christian. You became a Christian because your name was in that book. It is Jesus' last will and testament. Remember, we're seeing by definition this is an unconditional royal grant covenant. There are no conditions. The king gives you what he wants to give you and you get it. That is the basis of the new covenant. What was the basis of the old covenant? What you did. What's the basis of this covenant? What Jesus does. What he's already done and what he's still doing and what he's going to do. Now the Holy Spirit is the executor of his will. Shall I tell you why you became a believer? However it seemed from your perspective, oh, I suddenly realised and I decided, yes, from your perspective, that's what happened. Of course it was. And if that hasn't happened, you ain't a believer. All right. But from God's perspective, that was the Holy Spirit saying, hey, I got something here for you. You're in Jesus' last will and testament. Here, have faith. And the Holy Spirit enabled you to have faith in Jesus. That is how you entered into salvation. Right, what is the sign of the covenant? We've seen all these covenants have, have signs. What was the sign of the old covenant? Well, it was God's law written on tablets of stone. Go to Hebrews chapter 8. 
we're asking, what is the sign of the covenant? So the point is, if someone is in Jesus' last will and testimony, at some point before they die, you will see a sign. Alright? It's the only way you can know if someone's a believer. At some point before they die, you will see a sign. And if you're claiming to be a believer, then you'll see this sign in you. Alright? Hebrews 8, verses 8 to 10. Now, in actual fact, what the writer does here is he quotes Jeremiah 31. But listen to what he says. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers, the suzerain vassal covenant of the law when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they did not remain faithful to my covenant, so I turned away from them. The reason the old covenant is useless is let's say, let's say that you could just about come up with enough righteousness to get in. How are you going to stay in? You see, because the moment you sin, you've blown it and you're out. We need a covenant that when you're in, that's it, you are in. And nothing can get you out. If salvation isn't sin-proof, it ain't no good to me, buddy. Is it? Of course not. That's why we're eternally secure. But anyway, he goes on, he says, This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. What was the sign of the old covenant? God's laws written on tablets of stone. What's the sign of the new covenant? God's laws written on human hearts and changing people from the inside out. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And I'm going to read verses 1 to 6. And then verses 17 to 18. Now, listen to this. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by everybody. You show that you are a letter from Christ. What were the tablets of stone, a written letter to Israel? The sign of the new covenant is the law of God written in the hearts of his people. We are God's letter to the world. Not that we... uh, uh, Yeah, he says, the result, you are the result of our ministry written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Can you see the comparison he's making with the old covenant? And how that was given. Such, um, and then go down into verse, yeah, verse 6. He has made us competent as ministers, that should be servants, of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. The letter is the old covenant. The spirit here is the new covenant. Okay, and then go down to verse 17. Now the Lord is the spirit... And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we, who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his likeness, with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is 
the Spirit. So what have we got here? The sign of the new covenant is the law of God written on the hearts of those who are in the covenant so that they are growing all the time more and more into the glory of Jesus. Now notice it doesn't say glorified all over and done with no more problem with sin. It's ever in going from glory to glory. It's a growing thing. No one's arrived. Well, you will when you go to be with the Lord or when he comes. But this is an ongoing thing. But it is the sign of a believer. The law of God written in, in their hearts and their lives changing. Go to John 16. I earlier said that the Holy Spirit was the executor of Jesus' will. Let's, uh, let's see this. John 16, and uh, in verses 14 to 15, look what Jesus said. Um, he said, he's talking here about the spirit of truth. He will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. All that, the, all that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will take from what is mine and make it known to you. The point is Jesus had everything the Father had and now Jesus has given it to us. He's left it to us. That is our inheritance in the um, new covenant. And of course, this is the function of the executor to make sure you get what's been left to you. What's been left to you? Yes, salvation, but ultimately Jesus has left you himself. Jesus has bequeathed himself to us. He lives in us. We saw that Father, Son and Spirit live in us. And of course, the reason that the Holy Spirit, more than anything else in Scripture, is called the Holy Spirit, is because as the executor, as Jesus' will, he's enabling us more and more to live holy lives, the fruit of the Spirit. If you go to Romans chapter 8, or rather back to Romans chapter 8, and we'll see this there, and verses 15 to 16. And Paul says, For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. Now, if we are children of God, then we are heirs. See, the Holy Spirit, he's the one who causes us to become children of God because we believe in Jesus and are born again. And then he is the one who makes sure we grow in our inheritance. You know, often if you leave, leave an inheritance to young children, you'll put it in a trust. You don't just have it so if something happens to you that your 14-year-old your son gets that Ferrari and the big mansion just like that. Heaven forbid it would destroy him. You, you arrange things so he gets his inheritance bit by bit through the rest of his life. Well, that's how the Lord works in us. Bit by bit. Not all at once. We couldn't take that. Go to Ephesians 1. Ephesians chapter 1. And uh, verses 13 to 14. Now then, let's, let's just tie this in with the verse immediately before. In him we were also chosen. 
having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. So there's the parties. We're in the new covenant because we're named in it. He's chosen us. Then Paul goes on to say, and now we're wanting a... Um, Verse 13, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. And when he talks here about being a deposit, this is what the king's seal. In the ancient world, if something was sealed with the king's seal, you didn't open it. It was quite safe. It was going to get where it was going. And literally, God has sealed us. And that seal is the Holy Spirit. Because we have faith in Jesus, because we know that our lives are changing, okay, that is the guarantee that we will eventually make it into our full salvation. And we'll be looking at that in a later um, choice, uh, a later talk. And also, this word deposit is arabon. And in modern Greek, arabona is an engagement ring. And of course, one of the pictures that Paul uses for this, in his second letter to the Corinthians, he says, I've betrothed you to Christ. Can you see? And when, as it were, you get engaged to Jesus, and of course it's the church en masse that becomes the bride of Christ, not, not believers individually, but that engagement, my goodness, the marriage is going to happen. We've got the down payment and the rest of our inheritance will certainly come. Now, if we go back to 1 Corinthians 10, can you see why Paul, when he addresses abuses at the love feast in Corinth, in chapter 10, he immediately takes them back to what Israel was getting up to while Moses was getting the Old Covenant. Remember, they made the calf and they, they, they were immoral and they got drunk and stuff like that. God's judgment was happening at both. And of course, what was happening in the Corinthian church is because they were abusing this church meal, God was judging them in much the same way that he had judged Israel way back when the old covenant was given. And they are linked. And of course, the main thing that links them is this. The old covenant was a covenant in blood. And the new covenant is a covenant in blood. But whereas the old covenant was the blood of bulls and goats and all that sort of stuff, the new covenant was the blood of Jesus. His death leaving us the inheritance of salvation. Now, now go to Matthew 26. And now we go back to looking at how this relates to the love feast and how Jesus tied it in. And in Matthew 26... We read verses 26 to 28. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks and broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. 
Now, can you see what Jesus is saying? One of the things, now we're going to be seeing that there are various things at the heart of this meal that we eat together as a church. But one of the things, the first of the things at the heart of it, is the fact that those eating have been forgiven of their sins. You and I, as individuals, are forgiven because of the death of Jesus. So when we come together, when we eat that meal, it makes us, as it were, look back to the death of Jesus that predominantly, as far as you and I as individuals are concerned, was that we could be forgiven. What, I nearly said, what did we deserve? What a silly mistake. What do we still deserve? Eternal separation for God, from God. What are we going to get? Eternal fellowship with him. Grace, by definition, is a royal grant covenant. It's a gift of grace. Grace gives you precisely what you don't deserve. And at that meal, when we eat that food, we're reminding ourselves that Jesus died on the cross, gave up everything. He who deserved everything gave it all up so that we who deserve nothing could get it. The inheritance of his very life. Now then, do you remember back in Exodus 19? Let's go back there and read it. Back in Exodus 19. We'll refresh our memories. This was in regards to the giving of the covenant on Mount Sinai, the old covenant. Let's read verse 5 and 6 again. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now bear those words in mind and now go to 1 Peter chapter 2. And as we read 1 Peter chapter 2 and verses 9 and 10, ask yourself, ooh, do you think he's drawing a parallel here? 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. But you are a chosen people. Who are the parties in the new covenant? The New Testament, the royal grant covenant of Jesus' last will and testament. Who are the parties? Jesus and those who are chosen. And here he says, you are a chosen people. A royal priesthood. A holy nation. A people belonging to God. Does that just ring bells from what we read in Exodus 19? You see, at every point, the old covenant is prefiguring the new covenant. It's a picture of what was ultimately going to come when Messiah came. That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now, look at... Verses 11 and 12. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires. You see, those first verses, that's, that's the Passover, saved from the penalty of sin. But we saw the Feast of Unleavened Bread. 
being delivered from the power of sin in our lives. So he goes on to say, I urge you, abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that, though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God the day he visits us. What is the sign of the old covenant? The laws of God written on tablets of stone. What is the sign of the new covenant? The laws of God written on our hearts so that those around can read us and see the holiness of God. Not that they don't ever see us being sinful. No. But they'll see the treasure. The treasure is there. And set against our sinfulness will actually look even more wonderful. But not, not that that's an excuse to sin. But can you see... What Peter's saying here, so live out the law of God is in your hearts. Now, obey the law of God. Not because you've got to in your own strength in order to be saved. But the truth is, obey the law of God now because Jesus lives in you. Can you ever obey the law of God? Never. But let me tell you, Jesus can and he lives in you and he lives in me. That's the possibility. More than that, that is the promise of actually experiencing deliverance from the power of sin in our lives. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't mean by that that the, the power of sin is a past experience. You know, oh yes, I look back on those years when I used to suffer from a sin problem. Not saying that we're not sinning anymore, but it's saying that progressively, progressively, we're seeing the life of Jesus emerge in our lives. And that we're seeing an ongoing victory over sin. Not a total victory, not a complete victory. That's ridiculous. If anyone says that he doesn't sin, he's, you know, the Bible says he's, he's deceived. But the point is, progressively, we're growing into the holiness of Jesus. So that is the sign of the new covenant in our lives. Living holy lives. Because Jesus lives in us. So therefore, the Lord's Supper, when we gather as a church, when we're back home, we gather with the church we're part of, when you gather with the church you're part of, whatever, when you eat this meal, what you're looking at, one of the things that you're looking at, is that this is the new covenant meal. And it points us to Jesus' death for our forgiveness. We proclaim the Lord's death. Jesus said it's for forgiveness of sins. And so it points back to Jesus' death on the cross that we could be forgiven. And it points us to his resurrection because the fact that Jesus is alive now means he's living in us. And that's the possibility of holiness. So then, we've seen the Passover being delivered from the penalty of sin. Unleavened bread being delivered from the power of sin in our lives. Can you see how all these feasts are coming together in the Lord's Supper, pointing us to all the things we need to be reminding each other of about what Jesus has done for us. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians 5. We were there a couple of talks ago. But 1 Corinthians 5, and in verse 6 to 8, Remember, he said, your boasting is not good. Don't you know a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast 
that you may be a new batch without yeast, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, keep the festival, not with the old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. And that is how we should come to the Lord's Supper. Not coming to the Lord's Supper in order to there get right with God anywhere where we've come out of fellowship, but to come having already done that. To come knowing that we're keeping what some people call short accounts with God. So the love feast reminds us, hey, Jesus has forgiven us our sins. Well, if he's forgiven me my sins, well, my goodness, then I've got to make sure that I'm living in confession of sin. And that anything I've got to put right, I do that, maintaining my ongoing fellowship with God. Go back to 1 Corinthians 10. And let's just read some verses. Now bear in mind we're looking here at the Lord's Supper and its individual aspect. How it relates to us as individuals. So let's read verses 14 to 21. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. Because remember some of these guys were going down to the temple of Aphrodite. Blatant sin, Paul says, not on. He says, I speak to sensible people. Judge yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one loaf. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Do I mean that a sacrifice offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. Remember, some of the church were going down to the temple of Aphrodite and having the love feast there. And Paul says, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have part of both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Now for them, they were going and doing pagan practices and all sorts of getting drunk and immorality and stuff like that. And what Paul is saying, now then, if you're going to come to the Lord's table, you've got to realise you've been forgiven from all that. You've been set free from all that. That has now got to stop. Now, for them, it was going down the temple of Aphrodite. For us, it's whatever sin is in our hearts. So as we come to the Lord's table, we've got to come knowing that we're truly given to the Lord so that whatever version of attending the table of demons we have, that we're turning our back on that and we're coming to the Lord's table, we're coming to the love feast, recognising that Jesus has forgiven us. He is our Passover lamb. If he has forgiven us, and if he has become our Passover lamb, then we must remember the feast of unleavened bread. The Passover, being set free from the penalty of sin, leads on to unleavened bread, the cleansing in our lives of sin.
being set free, not from the penalty of sin, but being set free from the power of sin. And when we come to the Lord's table, we come ensuring that we're right with the Lord, that there isn't anything in our lives, no sorrows that we haven't said to him. It challenges us to maintain our own individual and ongoing fellowship with the Lord. Now in the next talk, having looked at the individual aspect, we're going to move on and we're going to see how the Lord's Supper, as well as all this, also speaks to us about our corporate lives together and our relationships with each other. So next time, the corporate aspect of the Lord's Supper.